All right, let's get uh, rolling. Today, beginning chapter 7 of the book of Daniel. It's, um, there are so many different, uh, well, not so many, there are several different charts I've given you. The one that's on page 4 might be helpful for at least for a little bit. Um, let me make a couple of introductory comments and then explain what I've written on the board here uh, because this, I think we'll get to this um, before the hour is up. Um, a couple of introductory comments. Number one, um, and I think I might have mentioned this last week, with Chapter 7, uh, the, the chronology, do you know what I mean by the word chronology? The chronology of Daniel has been broken. In other words, chapter 1 through chapter 6 is chronological. You start when Daniel is taken into exile, and you know immediately you, you find out about the diet and the schooling and all that stuff and how he tries to maintain his integrity. And then chapter 6, he is about 83 years old. Now chapter 7 is back to the early years of Belshazzar as king. So... Um, the chronological sequence has been broken. Second comment is, unlike the some of the other chapters in 1 through 6, where there's a dream, this isn't the king's dream, this is Daniel's dream. So Daniel has a dream that an angel will come and interpret for him, or help him to interpret it. The third thing that is really important, and, and this, I hope you'll understand the phrase I'm going to use here, this chapter, chapter 7, must have as its background chapter 2. Do you understand that sentence? In other words, what we looked at in chapter 2, now in chapter 7, chapter 2 is Nebuchadnezzar's dream, chapter 7 is Daniel's dream, chapter 7 adds to what we learned in chapter 2. Is that you understand? In other words, it's you have you have the four kingdom sequence in chapter two. In chapter seven, you have the four kingdom sequence. And as you did in chapter two, with the kingdom of God triumphing and a stone cut without hand from the mountain, crushing the statue. In chapter seven, we learn that that stone is a person, and that person is the Son of Man. And in both chapters, it is the kingdom of God that triumphs. All right, now, I, I just uttered a series of sentences <laughs> that are sort of the background for maximizing our understanding of the importance of chapter 7. So do you have any questions? I mean, don't, don't be afraid to ask a question here. But are you with me? Okay. All right, the other... The other thing, and this is kind of um, of a foreshadowing of how important chapter uh, 7 is. In chapter 7, we learn some additional uh, insight that <clears throat> there is going to arise an individual. He is called in this chapter the little horn. And you'll see why he is called that in just a minute. But this little horn is going to do some things in his opposition to God, both in terms of his character and in terms of his actions, that, now again, this is a very important sentence, that the rest of the Bible is going to build on this. 
Okay? So, we, as we get near the end of the chapter, uh, that is chapter 7, we really begin to understand that chapter 7 is not only giving us a framework for understanding history and the triumph of the kingdom of God at the end of history, but it's also telling us that before God's kingdom triumphs, there is going to be intense opposition to him. Now, we learn as we go through the rest of the Bible what that opposition looks like. And we start to get a framework from about that, too. But it's all wrapped around an individual who is that leading opponent of God. And what I've done up here, and if you, uh, I think you can read this, it's kind of like... Um, it's like a line going through history. And as this line goes through history, you learn more and more about this person. Okay? okay. And so as da in Daniel chapter 7, which we're about to study, he is called the, the little horn, the, the one that breaks off from this, it's really bizarre, but we'll get to it, this ten-horned monster. But anyway, mm -hmm. this little horn and stands in opposition to God, blasphemes God, what's the word, have worship of himself, but he's not going to win. God is going to crush him. God is going to stop him. In chapter 8 and 11 uh, of, of the same book, he's called the king, the willful king. He has a couple of labels. Then Jesus, uh, Jesus refers to him in chapter 24, verse 15. Uh, it's called the uh, uh, the Discourse of Jesus. But anyway, he's talking about the end times. He's answering the questions of his disciples about the end times. And he quotes from Daniel and says, this is the one Daniel's talking about. This one. That's in, I, sh I have an and there. I shouldn't have an and. I should have a dash. Chapter 8 through 11. Because we keep learning more and more about this person. And so Jesus quotes Daniel and says, this is, the one, this is who Daniel's talking about. And then Paul is going to do exactly the same thing. He's going to take what Jesus said and take what Daniel said, and he's going to talk about this person, this great man of sin, who's going to stand in opposition. We studied that when we were doing the Thessalonian letters. Remember that? You're supposed to say yes. Or yes. 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 And then finally, in 1 John 2, 18, he's called the Antichrist. That's the only time in the Bible he's called the Antichrist. And then finally, in the book of Revelation, he's called the Beast. And that's in chapter 13. He's kind of in different parts, but from chapter 13 through 19, he's called the beast. But he he is the same person. So we're in we're introduced to him here as this little horn. We're going to get to that in just a second. And the rest of the Bible builds on our understanding of him. And by the way, when we get to this chapter here, it's actually chapter 12 and chapter 13 together, we learn he's really the incarnation of Satan. He is the last uh, throw of throws of evil that Satan uh, tries to affect before Satan is cast into the lake of fire at the very end of time. All right, now, uh, again, I'm, I've been thinking all week, how do I approach this chapter, because we have such a short amount of time together, to maximize... Uh, the understanding of it. So what I've done in the last 10 minutes is what I've been thinking about all week. <laughs> so
So um, do you ha I, I know it's a lot to throw at you, but if, if it's been helpful, that's great. If it's not, feel free to ask questions. Are there any questions? Do you have a pretty good idea of what I'm doing here? Okay, your, your shaking of heads is yes. good. Your silence is good. So I'm assuming yes. that you're with me. Yes. Good. I'm with you. You said this uh, builds on the whole the balance of the, the Bible. It Would does. that include the balance of the Old Testament as well as the New then? Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And, I mean, there, I'm only really touching the surface of that, Fred, but that's right. I mean, the prophets, minor prophets, major prophets, as well the book of Ezekiel, they all build on this material, help us to understand it. That's right. Not because they read it, but because it's inspired for them to write? Uh, correct. Now, in some cases, they read it, uh, oh, okay. but in, in other cases, just because the Holy Spirit that inspired this has inspired all the books of the Bible, right? So it's both of those together. All right, let's start reading the, the chapter then. And again, if you have the chart on page 4, that might be helpful. There is another chart uh, back on page 22, I think it is, that could be helpful. But I like this one because what it does is it gives you the whole book of Daniel in one chart. And it, let's just remind ourselves again, if you're looking at that chart on page 4, you have that statue. It's, of course, we don't exactly know what it looked like, but the statue there and the four parts of that statue. And now you're going to see a parallel. And that's what Daniel chapter 7 is all about. All right, verse 1 of chapter 7, in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon. Now, I hope you re remember him. That takes you back a couple of chapters. So that this isn't chronological going back, because that's not important. Daniel saw a dream and visions in his mind as he lay on his bed, and then he wrote the dream down and related the following summary of it. Daniel said, I was looking in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great and four great beasts were coming up from the sea, different from one another. Now, again, it is a study of the entire Old Testament that helps us to understand these figures, uh, figures of speech that are being used here. I hope you'll trust me with this. Great sea is used in the Old Testament when it's used figuratively of the sea of humanity. It's used that way in Isaiah several times. So he sees a dream of four beasts coming out of the great sea. What does that mean? Coming out of humanity. So these are four great beasts that will have power over humanity. And the four winds of heaven are used throughout the Old Testament as a metaphor for judgment. So as Daniel is beginning to share, and he, he tells us, I wrote what I saw, I wrote this dream down. And what he wrote down is chapter 7. And so he says, the first thing I'm telling you is I saw three, four great winds of heaven blowing upon the great sea. What does that mean? The judgments from God dealing with humanity, and the focus of that is these Four great beasts coming out of humanity. All right, so that helps us, that alerts us to, okay, he is talking about the same kinds of things we saw in chapter 2. The first was like, now notice it's a simile. 
you know what a simile is? It's a figure of speech that's introduced by the word as or like. So it's like a lion. It isn't a lion. It's like, like a lion. And has the wings of an eagle. And I kept. And if you look at the, the chart on page 4, there's just an attempt to give a picture of what that might look like. And it was lifted up, and I kept looking until its wings were plucked, and it was lifted from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the human mind also was given to it. Okay, now, well, that, that's symbol, it's symbolic, but it's, it's going to, as you're going to see in a minute, because it's going to be interpreted by the angel, this is Babylon. And this is King Nebuchadnezzar, whose wings were plucked, but his mind was restored to him. So it's the same language. Oh, this is Nebuchadnezzar. Verse 5, And behold, another beast, a second one resembling a bear. Okay, it's a figure of speech. It's a bear. And it was raised up on one side, and three ribs were in its mouth between its teeth. And they said to it, Rise, devour much meat. Now, as you're going to see in the interpretation in just a minute, that bear that has three ribs in its teeth is Persia because Persia consolidated three kingdoms into one. Verse 6, and it conquered. We looked last week at the expanse of that empire. It went from Egypt all the way to what today would be India. Verse 6, and after this I kept looking and behold another one, again notice the simile, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. Okay, it's a leopard, and you'll see, as again, in just a minute, that that leopard is Alexander the Great, who moved quickly in conquering the world. When he dies, his kingdom is divided into four parts. So you see, I mean, you see that imagery, four heads, four parts, okay? Now verse 7 gets complicated. And after this, I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast. And this is very hard for Daniel. Dreadful, terrifying, extremely strong, had large iron teeth. Now that, that's important because in the, in the statue in chapter 2, the legs are made of iron. So that, there's a similarity there. It devoured and crushed and trampled down, and the remainder with its feet. And it was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. Now, here's this is why it's really kind. And you'll see as, as we get later in the chapter, Daniel asks the angel, I don't understand this fourth beast. This, I don't understand this. And the fourth beast is going to interpret, uh, excuse me, the angel is going to interpret for him the meaning of the fourth beast. If you remember, and again, this is really, it's, it's requiring that you remember the stuff we studied when we were chapter 2. But that fourth kingdom has two phases to it. You have the legs, but then you have the ten toes that are made of sand and iron. I don't know, a mixture of sand, iron and clay. Now, have I lost you? But remember, it's the legs of iron and then the ten toes. It's got two phases to it. Now, do you think we should connect the ten horns in Daniel 7 
with the ten toes in Daniel 2. Yes. You think we should connect those two? As you're going to see in a minute, yes, we should. We should connect those two. So what you have is you have this fourth kingdom paralleling the fourth kingdom in Daniel chapter 2. But that fourth kingdom has a later phase. In Daniel 2, it was a kingdom made up of ten toes, mixed iron and clay, like a confederacy kind of a kingdom. Here in Daniel 7, it's a beast with ten horns. So I hope I haven't lost you. The parallel you we are supposed to be making. This is very confusing to Daniel, and the angel, as you're going to see in a minute, is going to help him understand this. All right, now I hope I haven't lost you so far. Again, if you're looking at the chart, it's kind of doing the best it can possibly do to keep the parallel between the two dreams, Daniel 2, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, Daniel 7, Daniel's dream. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. You want me to go back? All right, I'm going to go forward then. Verse 8, now remember, because you have the ten-horned beast and the ten toes of the fourth kingdom, the second phase, we're in that second phase. Following? It's very reasonable to, to make that connection, which is how we are to do it. So we're in that second phase. We are now near the end, before the kingdom of God triumphs. Verse 8, while I was contemplating the horns, what horns? The ten-horned beast at the end. Behold, another horn, a little one, came up among them. Now you're going to see this again and again and again in Daniel and in the book of Revelation. This little horn that arises out of this ten-horned beast is the willful king, the abominable one, the the man of sin, Antichrist, the beast. This is that person. This is the person, and that's, we did not learn that in chapter 2. Now we're learning it in chapter 7. As we near the end of history, the triumph of God's kingdom, an individual is going to rise up who is going to lead that final rebellion against God. And in his conquest, he will conquer three of those ten. Perhaps because they resist him? We don't know exactly. But he conquers. This horn possesses eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth uttering boasts. As you will see in Matthew 24, as you will see in 2 Thessalonians 2, as you will see in Revelation 13. That is exactly what he does. He boasts and he exalts himself as God. All right, verse 9. How can he do that as God? Fred, I'm not understanding your question. How no. can he do that as God? I, I don't, yeah, I'm he, not he sure. I understand himself, the words. But he declares himself that's right. as God. Mm-hmm. Why? What would be the basis of believing miracles? That? That is where we'll see a little bit of it here uh, in this chapter, and we'll see more of it in 8 and more of it in 9, but it is really in Revelation where you see a great deal of the detail. He will be a false Christ. He will do, the, in the phrase that's used in the book of Revelation, he will do the signs and wonders like Jesus did. And, and we'll learn this too in Revelation. 
the false prophet, and, uh, and that's, a, that's a phrase that's used to support his right, to describe his right-hand man, is going to do miracles. So, Fred, I think what, what we're saying here, and this is the way I think we are to understand it, with all of these books of the Bible, now you and I have that advantage, that this is, this is Satan's last attempt to overthrow God, and he's going to set up an entire false messiah. This Jesus is not the Messiah. This is the Messiah. This is the Christ. This is the Son of God. Look at what he does. He brings peace to the world. I mean, these kinds of things. So as he achieves all that, then he sets himself up to be God, to be worshipped. And it's very specific. Jesus refers to that in Matthew 24 on Temple Mount. He wants to be worshipped in the center, in the center of the Jewish, Christian, Muslim world that's where he's going to set himself up. Because if you take the Jewish, Christian, and Muslim world of today, you have a significant part of the world's population. He's going to set himself up there to be worshipped. You see what he's doing? He's consolidating his power. All we're learning here, this is the first time we're, we're introduced to this, a mouth uttering great boasts. That's the first time we learn this. Arrogant, hubris, defiant, now, we're going to find out more about him in just a minute in verse 11 and verse 12. But in verse 9, we complete the sequence. It's just like we did in chapter 2. We complete the sequence. Now we're introduced to God. Ed. Well, all three religious groups then worship him as a, or, or in, that's what he's trying to get all three to worship him. I, I don't know. Um, I don't know. Well, let me put it this way. The answer is yes, plus all other people in the world. But it, I said, like the, way, the reason I said it that way, he sets himself up in Jerusalem, which is the key city to these three great religions. And so you take those three, you have a significant portion of the world's population. And I think that's one of the reasons, plus, obviously, if he is a substitute Christ, which is what Anti in Greek means, anti, a substitute Christ, then that means he is going to want to be active in the very center of the world where God has been active for 4,000 years, which is Jerusalem. So, I mean, it's, it's just, it, it's this, if you keep, and this is really difficult, it's hard for people to do this, if you keep your focus on what is going on in these passages, you start to see an amazing consistency throughout the Bible. And the consistency is it's the same material, and each, each passage adds more detail to who this is. So now we're introduced to this person. We haven't been introduced to this person yet in Daniel. Now we're introduced to this person. And the rest of Daniel is going to tell us more about this person, and then all these other things that, uh, passages that I wrote up here, plus others, but that just highlights it. We learn a great deal about who this person is. He is the last rebel <laughs> against God. Yeah. He's, he's leading that final rebellion. And in my own view, and it's how I understand the sequence of things, if the church is raptured, you can understand why evil will utterly triumph in those last seven years. The restrainer, which is how, you know, when you studied Second Thessalonians 2, the restrainer is gone. The, 
the Holy Spirit who indwells the church, the church has been taken. There is nothing to restrain evil. And it goes absolutely wild in those seven years. And the, the center of that is this individual that we've just been introduced to. Okay? I, you know, it's really important that we share Christ with other people because we don't know when this is going to That's occur. Right. That's right. And, and um, one atheist said recently, an avowed agnostic atheist, and, uh, he, he <clears throat> said, if you must hate me as a Christian, if you will not share Christ with me, you must want to see me in hell or not care if I go to hell. Mm -hmm. That's right. And I, I mean, I, you think about that, and we've got enough people around us that we know that, you know, I mean, hell is real. It's his influence, not ours. I mean, if we, if yeah. we share, yeah. then it might be that that person won't be in a situation that is not with Christ. Mm. Yeah, yeah. It's it's interesting. I don't I don't know which uh, which atheist you're talking about because there are several that are very popular today. But he's he's being very cynical in what he's saying. But in this middle of that cynicism is the truth. If you really care about me, you should be telling me about Jesus. That's right. And I, you know, I'm not sure that's what he means. I think he's a little more cynical. But if the, the 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 important truth for you and me is that's true. We really should be. Verse 9 now, and it's this, the structure of this is really important. You have 9 and 10, then you have 11 and 12, and then you have 13. So what we do is, is in 9 and 10, we're introduced to God and these, this final kingdom. History's about to end, but his opponent, God's opponent, at the end is this little horn. And in verse 11 and 12, we see more about him. And then verse 13, the final triumph of God. Now verse 9, I kept looking until thrones were set up and the Ancient of Days took his seat. I ask you to contemplate who that is. Who is the Ancient of Days? God. It's God. So this is the focus now of verse 9 and 10 is the throne room of Almighty God. What Daniel sees in this dream is the throne of God, the throne room of God. That's what he sees. And he uses metaphors and similes to try to describe what he sees. His vesture, again, notice, notice the similes. His vesture... You know, vesture means clothing, was like white snow, his hair like pure wool. His throne was ablaze with flames, its wheels were burning fire. By the way, if you take that description, that is exactly what you see in Ezekiel chapter 1, verse 13. Now, did you ever hear that? What did Ezekiel see? You know, the, the fiery throne? It's the throne chariot of God. It's exactly the same language. And that was... Way before this. Uh, it's about, it's almost the same time, uh, Woody, that Ezekiel and Daniel are contemporaries. They're both taken into exile. They both live in Babylon. A river of fire was flowing 
coming out from before him. Thousands upon thousands were attending him. Myriads upon myriads were standing before him. The court shut and the books were opened. Mm. We are in the throne room of God. Wow. And that's what Daniel writes about. And by the way, the language here of this, these two verses is almost identical to Isaiah chapter 6, where, Ident- where Isaiah sees a vision of th- God's throne, of Revelation 4 and 5, where we're in the throne room of God. The language is identical. Why do you think it's identical? Because they're all seeing exactly the same thing. And they try to write down what they see. So, I mean, that shouldn't surprise you. All right, now, okay, we're in, the th- we're in heaven, the throne room of God. What's going on in earth? Verse 11 and 12, the final rebellion against him. The final rebellion against the Ancient of Days. Now, if you don't, if you don't keep this in mind, you, you're, you're losing what's going on in the passage. You have four kingdoms in, in, in Daniel 7. It's the lion, the bear, the leopard, then this hideous beast, phase one, phase two, ten kingdoms coming together. Out of this ten kingdom comes a little horn who blasphemes and boasts. Now verse 11, we're back to earth. Then I kept looking because of the sound of the boastful words which the horn was speaking. What's that referring to? It's taking us back to the end of verse 8. And I kept looking until the beast was slain and its body was destroyed and given to the burning fire. Now, verse 11, it's amazing. Verse 11 is a summary of Revelation 13 through 19 in one verse. Verse 11 of of, of chapter 7 of Daniel is the summary of Revelation 13 through 19. That's what it is. It's a summary in one verse. Busy boasts, he's slain, and he's thrown into the lake of fire. (laughs) That's exactly what happens in Revelation. That's what verse 7 uh, 13 through 19. 13. Chapters 13 through 19. Okay. And for the rest of the beasts, those who supported him, their dominion was taken away, but an extension of life was granted them for a appointed time, a period of time. That is for their judgment. Verse 13. Let's stop there. Yeah, please. For, for, a, for a period of time. They were the other beasts were stripped of their authority but were allowed to live for a period of time. I'd like to put a question mark there. Yes, until until their judgment. Until their judgment. The beast is you, you read that in Revelation 19. The beast is seized and thrown into the lake of fire by Jesus Christ. Jesus does that. Tells us in Revelation 19. But the rest of his supporters, that's, you have to then look at Matthew 25. and so, The rest of the supporters, those who were supporting him, they are not immediately thrown into the lake of fire, Woody. Their judgment awaits a series of months before they're standing before, it's in Matthew 24, the Lord Jesus. It's what we call the judgment of the nations. That's all it's telling us. Not everyone who opposes Christ at the end is immediately seized in front of the lake of fire. It is a period of time till they're judged. That's all it's telling us. And I would suppose that they would have a chance to uh, realize that the real God uh, and believe in the real God. I think we we could infer that the text is when we get to Revel, uh, Matthew twenty five and Revelation nineteen. The text seems to indicate that very few do, but 
I think there is that opportunity because, and the Bible makes it clear, any human being, until they take their last breath, has an opportunity to respond to the gospel, so to speak. So, uh, but yes. All right, now, verse 13. Okay, you have verse 9, or rather verse 8, we're introduced to this little horn. Verse 9 and 10, we're in the throne room of God. Verse 11 and 12, we're back on earth. Now verse 13, we're back in the throne room. And I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, that's all through the Old Testament, that's a reference to where God resides, one like a son of man was coming, and he came up to the ancient of days, and he was presented before him, and to him was given dominion, glory, a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, every language might serve him. The dominion is an everlasting dominion, which will not pass away. And his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. All right, now, this is, this is, this is absolutely central because we learn information in this, these two verses that we did not learn in Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, we learn a stone cut without human hands smashes... The statue, remember that? Mm -hmm. And brings human history to an end. Daniel chapter 7 tells us it's a person. And he has a title. And he is given dominion over the universe by his father. Who is the son of man? It's Jesus. If you look in the New Testament, if you look at the New Testament, the, the title Jesus referred to himself most was the Son of Man. That's what, when he talked about himself, he used the title Son of Man. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. He says to the disciples, the Son of Man, whose son is he? In, in Matthew chapter 21. Uh, yes. Have, uh, this is a, admittedly a funny trail. Uh, <laughs> But when they talked about the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven, and I, I happen to be in a teaching Bible, and it, and it tells us this one, the Son of Man, is the Messiah. Jesus used this reverse to this verse, this verse to refer to himself. The clouds of heaven portray the Son of Man as divine throughout the Bible. Clouds represent his majesty and awesome presence. God's glory appeared like a cloud and they talk about it in Exodus and in the giving of the law at That's Sinai. Right. That's right. And the bunny trail is that, you know, once in a while somebody will send something out that there'll be a photo of a cloud that looks yeah. like Jesus Christ. Oh, yes. And that's where it's coming from. Yeah. I never knew where that yeah. was coming from. You got from. it. Right here. You got it. That's right. Yeah. That's the bunny trail. That's, that's a good bunny trail. All right. So, um, what did we learn here in verse 13 and 14? That this stone cut without human hands is the Son of Man. And he is the one who defeats this little horn and is the one who's given dominion. So you see the you see this sense here of the Trinitarian nature of God. The ancient of days is the Father, the Son of Man is the Son. And that's how through the old excuse me, through the New Testament, this is depicted. All right, now, what can we do with this? Daniel chapter seven 
as with Daniel chapter 2, assumes the four kingdom sequence. Do you understand that phrase? As Daniel 2 had the four kingdom sequence, Daniel 7 has the four kingdom sequence. With the fourth kingdom having a, having a second phase. As with Daniel 2, the kingdom of God triumphs. In Daniel 7, the kingdom of God triumphs. What we learn in Daniel 7 is more detail about how that's going to occur. But we see that where is history headed? That's not a hard question to answer. History is headed to the triumph of the kingdom of God through Jesus Christ. For you and me, because we have the completed 66 books of the Bible and all of that, we know that the next, the next event in God's program is the return of Jesus. That's the next event. There's nothing else that has to happen. That's why the church in the first century, and it's throughout the New Testament, you should be ready because the next event is the return of Jesus. Can I ask a, a loaded question? How many, how many, it's hypothetical, but how many years could it keep going? Oh, I, I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. I have no idea. I'm just curious. Christ, Christ did not know the answer. But oh, Jesus, I, Jesus, and Jesus made it very clear in, in the Olivet Discord, Matthew 24. Don't try to figure it out. No, no. No I'm man not. knows the day or the hour. I mean, it's, I mean, there are certain things that I think would seem to indicate that it's close. I, my own view is, I think, kind of the things that are going on in the Middle East right. are very important. Um, so, uh, but I think we are, we are discouraged to try to be specific. And I can tell you, and maybe you know this, if you go back through the last 2,000 years of church history, there have been many, many people that have tried to say, okay. Jesus is coming back now. No, I meant And that day comes and there. he doesn't come back. <laughs> I meant in a ballpark. Like no, I don't even, even think. Even 100 years, I, I, I think God is so graceful. It could yeah. go another 500 years, mankind, to be that way. Yeah. No. Well, it's yeah, I think that's all I'm trying to yeah, say. and one of the things that it's in Second Peter chapter three, but uh, Peter says people are going to mock you for still believing in this truth that Jesus is going to come back, yeah. and they're going to say, "Where is he?" Yeah, and you know, for you and me, when when Peter wrote that, it was, it was about fifty years. <laughs> when you and I write, and no, it wasn't even fifty years; it was like forty years. But for you and me, it's two thousand years. Yeah, and then Peter says. The reason God delays is so that more will come yeah. to salvation. So you could put it uh, the way I love to put it. God is delaying to increase the population of heaven. Yes, he is. That's why God is delaying. Grace. So it's his grace. is no other explanation for it. You see, there's nothing that is, needs to happen before he comes again. Right. Uh, you need, can you distinguish between the rapture and the second coming yes. when he comes after yes. the tribulation, which are two different events? Yes, uh, two, uh, two different events. I mean, that the, 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 the Bible is very clear. The return of Jesus for his church is imminent. We do not know when it's going to happen. But the there is a time frame, in what we'll learn in chapter 9, the 70th week. There's a time frame of seven years. Now, the, 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 the one question that is not answered is, when exactly does that seven-year period start? That, we, we can't be totally precise there. Well, I thought it was after the Antichrist made a treaty with... Well, see, that, that, see here, you guys are, you're, you're both... 
the, the, the text is unclear as to exactly when does that clock begin to tick. We think the rapture, which I think is accurate, the rapture is such a seminal event, but the Antichrist will then reveal himself, and this covenant treaty that he makes is a very, very important one. That is an important marker, because then you go halfway through that 70, and then he breaks that. But when is that thing signed? It's doesn't sound like it's signed exactly the same day that the rapture occurs. So how how much time is there between the rapture and this covenant? And that, that we can't answer from Scripture. But it, I don't think it's going to be very long. That's why there is a degree in which we're not really sure and how long will it be until the Lord Jesus returns in what we call his second coming. All right. On verse 10 real quick. Verse 10. Books were open. Does that mean judgment day is coming? Well, that's right. That phrase, books are open, is judgment. It's always a reference to judgment. Mm-hmm. And that's telling us that, because remember, we're going back, we're in the throne room of God in uh, 9 and 10. 11 and 12, we're back on earth. 13 and 14, we're back in the throne room of God. And what that is to do for us is we're to understand that God is about to bring human history to conclusion and bring judgment. The books are opened. And, I mean, that's how I think we should understand that. May I ask a question on that judgment? You just yeah, yeah. When you share somebody with the judgment seats, are we go the Christians? Do they go to the judge? They go and is you're bypassed. You get what I'm trying to say. Uh, you're well, born again, and this yeah. one doesn't know Christ. Right. So, so you're not well, in the in Revelation 20, when Jesus right. returns, right. second 20. coming, and all that, you 14. you see the great white throne judgment. That's what it's that's called. The, that is not for believers. Right. You, okay. If you have made the if you made the decision of faith in the Lord Jesus, you will not. That's not. We don't go. You will not be judged. Right. You will not be judged. Because what the Bible is clear is that Jesus, when you put your faith in Jesus, He is judged for your sin. Yes. That's, that's why we Thank put our Jesus. faith in Him. So we will not be judged at the great white throne. All right. Now, are we ready to start verse fifteen? Or yes, we are. Okay. All right, now, I've tried to do this as best I could. You have the four-kingdom sequence and the triumph of the kingdom of God. Okay, now, verse 15, As for me, Daniel, my spirit was distressed. He's still writing now. And the visions in my mind kept alarming me. Well, I I would agree with that, wouldn't you? I mean, goodness. I approached one of these who were standing by and began asking the exact meaning. That that every, every indication is this is an angel who's there. We don't know who it is. There's no name. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. So from verse 17 on, and there's going to be some interaction between Daniel and this angel, but the angel begins to explain it. And it's particularly valuable for Daniel when he talks about the fourth kingdom. The great beasts, which are four in number, are four kings which will arise from the earth. Okay, that's exactly like what we saw in chapter 2. But the saints of the highest one will receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever for all ages to come. All right, now there we're introduced to something else we didn't learn in chapter 2. Who will be the citizens of God's coming kingdom? We. The saints. All of those who have put their faith in him. We didn't learn that in chapter 2. Now we learn it in chapter 7. 
who will be the citizens of that kingdom? The saints. And they will possess the kingdom. How long? Forever. Then I des- this is Daniel speaking. Then I desired to know the exact meaning of the fourth beast, which, as you already know from our study so far, is hard. <coughs> Excuse me. Which was different from all the others. Exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron, its claws of bronze, which devoured, crushed, trampled down the remainder with its feet. And the meaning of the ten horns that were on its head. Okay, verse 19 is phase one. Verse 20 is phase two. The ten horns that are on its head. And the other horn, which came up, the little horn that we just read about. And before the three that fell, the horn which had eyes and a mouth uttering great boasts was larger in appearance than its associates. I kept looking. And that horn, what horn? The little horn was waging war with the saints and overpowering them. Revelation chapter, well, we're going to see it here, we're going to see it here, we're going to see it here. He is, he, this beast, this little horn, is going to make war on the people of God. Now, at the end, the people of God are going to be the Jews, who are going to be embracing Jesus, as well as people that are saved during the tribulation period. But he's going to make war on them. And he's almost going to win. Verse 8, verse 22. Until the Ancient of Days came and judgment was passed in favor of the saints of the highest one. And the time arrived when the saints took possession of the kingdom. Okay, now all we, we, have, we have a little bit more information there we learn. We know who the little horn is, phase two of the fourth kingdom. Boastful, bragging. He's going to make war on the people of God. But he's not going to win. Verse 23. Thus he said the fourth beast will be a fourth kingdom on earth, which will be different from all the other kingdoms, would devour the whole earth, tear it down, crush it. And as for the ten kings, phase two, out of that kingdom, ten kings will arise. Another will arise after them. He will be different from the previous ones and will subdue three kings. Now notice verse 25 and 26. We learn more information about this little horn. He's keep building and adding information. He will speak out against the Most High. Now the Most High is who? In the Old Testament, it's one of the titles of Yahweh, one of the titles of God. And wear down the saints of the highest one. And he will intend to make alterations in times, and in law, now, this is really important, because exactly what we read in Revelation, he is going to alter the calendar. And he's going to alter law. We're going to read, we're going to, well, well, we're not going to study Revelation right now, but Revelation explains to us that he is going to alter, he's going to make himself the center of all law. So he, he is altering everything to accommodate his rise to power. Now, here we learn something we haven't learned before. They will be given into his hand for time, times, and half a time. That is euphemistic language for three and a half years. So for three and a half years, he is going to be the world's dictator. He'll alter time, he'll alter law. We didn't learn this in Daniel 2, and up to this point in Daniel 7, we didn't learn this. So for three and a half years, 
He is going to be the supreme Lord of planet Earth. Unbelievable, incredible, and people are, people gonna are going to follow him. Jesus talks about this in Revelation, uh, in Matthew 24. Jesus says he is going to, I'm paraphrasing, he's going to be so convincing that if I didn't come back, even some of the elect would follow him, which is an extraordinary statement. Right. It just shows, because Jesus uses four times in Matthew 24, Jesus uses the word deceit. Mm-hmm. He is going to be so deceitful. See, you and I, it, it, we read it, you keep read, if you read all the study, keep reading about this. Praise the Lord, I don't think we're going to be there. But we do not really understand how deceptive and powerful he's going to be. He is the, I believe, and we learned that in Revelation, he's the incarnation of Satan. And he is going to be so powerful and do the same things Jesus did that people are going to say he is the Messiah. Mm-hmm. He has come. But then, that's why for three and a half years, but then the last three and a half years is when everything starts to come apart. The last three and a half years is when everything starts to come apart, which culminates in Armageddon. Because then all the armies of the world invade Israel to put the Antichrist down. And of course he then fights, and, and it's just a horrible, horrible thing. Because that's when, in the last three and a half years, is when God really pours out his judgment, what's called the bold judgment. And I mean, it's it's a horrible period. But the first three and a half years, nobody can touch it. The last three and a half years, it starts to come apart, which culminates in the Battle of Armageddon. Jim, some people may think that these these immediate verses that we've just uh, spoken about, um, we might think that that could be happening today, when in fact it cannot be happening no, no, today, no, no. because. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we have people that are braggadoxical mm-hmm. and so forth, uh, but that isn't this period. No, no, no. Because the now, rapture there's, will have There's a really interesting passage in First John chapter 2, and that's where the Antichrist title comes from. John says the spirit of Antichrist is always active in history. Is always what? Always active in history. The spirit of Antichrist. But... Not like the Antichrist to come. Now, all that's an intriguing that's an intriguing verse to think about for a minute, because the spirit of Antichrist was evident in Adolf Hitler. Yeah. Adolf Hitler wasn't the Antichrist, but the spirit of Antichrist. The spirit of Antichrist was evident in Alexander the Great. The spirit of Antichrist was evident in Philip II. You don't know him, but of Spain. I mean, there have been rulers throughout history where this that spirit of rebellion against God is there. They're not the Antichrist, John says in 1 John 2. Not like the Antichrist to come, but that spirit of rebellion against God is always there in history. Are we talking about demonic? Sure. Well, it's a demonic, yeah, because it's sourced in... That's right. It's sourced in... All right, uh, Woody. Jim, I'm sorry. It's, uh, no, that's Woody, fine. And I don't know if I should ask this. I, I guess I'm a little confused. In chapter, or in verse 14, Right. Uh, I wrote a note there that Jesus defeats the Antichrist. That's right. That's incorrect. That's correct. That's correct. So then, but down here, God has to come back. Well, no, right. And finish up. But, yes. Now, Remember what you have through verse 14 is the vision, the dream recorded. Now verse 15 through the end, the angel's interpreting this for Daniel. So you're going back, you're going all through it again. 
And the angel is just adding some additional information about this. And that's correct. It is God in Jesus Christ, second person of the Trinity, that will destroy the little horn, what the New Testament calls the Antichrist. But verse 25 is an important verse because we learn several new pieces of information about that little horn. He's going to change time. He's going to change law. And he's going to be the supreme autocrat for three and a half years. Time, time, half time. Three, year, three and a half years. But then verse 26. But the court will sit for judgment. We're back to the throne room of God. And his dominion will be taken away, annihilated and destroyed forever. Revelation 19 tells us in graphic language, Jesus Christ is going to come back to earth, going to march onto Temple Mount, head north to Jezreel Valley, seize the Antichrist, and throw him into the lake of fire. I mean, that's exactly the language it's used. Then verse 27, then the sovereignty, the dominion, the greatness of all the kingdoms under the whole heaven will be given to the people of the saints of the highest one. His kingdom... Whose kingdom? The Son of Man's kingdom, Daniel 7, 13, will be an everlasting kingdom, and all dominion will serve and obey him. At this point, Revelation ended. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts were greatly alarming me. My face grew pale, but I kept the matter to myself. <laughs> He'd go out in, on the streets of, 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 of Babylon, or, well, yeah, in Babylon and, and declare this. Now, I want you to notice that, that language at the end of verse 7. And all dominions will serve and obey him. That's the language Paul uses, isn't it, in Philippians 2. There's coming a day when every knee will bow and every tongue will confess Amen. that Jesus is the King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. So we're, Daniel chapter 7 adds to this panoramic view of history that Daniel's doing for us. It adds to that. And we have the four kingdom sequence that we saw in Daniel 2, but we learn a lot more about that second phase of that fourth kingdom because that all revolves around a person. We didn't learn that in chapter 2. And that person is this little horn. And what is described of him in this section that we just finished is going to just be added to through the rest of the Bible. We're going to learn more and more about this person and how utterly, dastardly, and evil he is. But every time it comes up, it's said, but he's not going to win. He is not going to win. And Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the King of kings, the Son of Man, and so on. So listen, I know we've got to quit here. When you read the Son of Man in the New Testament, and if you, know, you read the, New, the Gospels particularly, you see Son of Man all over the place. Every time you see Son of Man, you should say Daniel 7.13. <laughs> Seriously, I mean, every time you see it in the New Testament, you think Daniel 7.13. Because every Jew in the first century, when they would hear Jesus, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. Who is, whose son is the Son of Man? These are the questions things Jesus said. Every time a Jew heard that, they would think of Daniel 7.13. Because when Jesus said that of himself, he's claiming to be Daniel 7.13. That's his claiming. I am that one that's being referred to there. So it's extraordinarily important for the rest of the Bible. Daniel 7 is one of the most important chapters in the Bible. It's still, it's still it's that panoramic view. It's just laying it out for us. But it becomes clearer. Now chapter 8 and then chapter 9. I don't know how we'll ever get through these chapters. But those, we're going to add more detail to it. Now listen, this is a tough hour. Are you with me? Did I lose you or are you pretty much with me? 
This is a great chapter. I mean, we really did a lot today. You leave this building and you say, I understand chapter 7. You're one of the few evangelicals in the United States that really understand it. Because most people, I'm, I'm serious, they don't really study this stuff very well. And so, you know, I hope you. I hope it's been beneficial. Jim, I real quick, uh, yeah. a word that equates to man. He says, "I'm son of man." What's the word that you would put in there that symbolizes that concept? Son of man. Man is born in sin. Yeah, I. I he, it's it's focusing on his his perfect humanity as the okay. as okay. the second. Okay. You know, he's That's added to his deity humanity. Okay. He's the son of God and son of man. You oh, know. Superman. I always tell. Well, <laughs> no, but I always yeah. use that analogy. Yeah. That was right. Chapter 8 through 12 now shifts the focus. Now the focus is how do the Jews fit into this? That's what chapter 8 starts to answer. How did the Jews fit into all this? This panorama of history. Where did the Jews fit? And that's what chapter 8 through 12 is going to answer for us. And we'll get started with that next week. All right. Let's pray. Father. This is a tough chapter, it's, um, yet it's an extremely important chapter. Uh, perhaps the great takeaway from a, a study like this is uh, the simple truth that evil is not going to triumph. And this little horn, this evil, dastardly person at the end of history who tries to change time and change law and boast and blaspheme you as he seeks to be worshipped is not going to triumph. The spirit of Antichrist is very active even in our world today, but we belong to you. We are not to fear evil. We are to be wise. We are to be shrewd. We're to be careful, but our fear is of you. We have put our faith in you. We believe your promises, and we believe that we are part of that triumph that Daniel talks about here in chapter 7, where the saints of the Most High will rule. The Bible says that we are destined as our as our inheritance to be a joint heir with Jesus. We will rule and reign in the coming kingdom with him. That's exactly what Daniel 7 teaches us. We are part of your inheritance. We are part of your future, the plans that you have for this planet. And when we put our faith in Christ, everything changes. In a sense, we're on that winning side because of all that Jesus has done. We praise you, we honor you, and we're very thankful that you have chosen us, that we are part of your kingdom, and we look forward to being a part of that great triumph of goodness and righteousness that is part of the, the time to come when Jesus returns. We trust you to keep your promises. We trust you day by day, so help us, as in our trusting of you to represent you well to a world that needs to hear about you. In your son's name we pray, amen. See you next week.